Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the abundant gift of the grace that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we are saved by grace alone. And that our plea comes not based upon our merits, but fully and completely on the merits of Jesus Christ. Whose righteousness is given to us, not because we deserve it, but in spite of us. And we look at this and we see this undeserved favor that you have showered upon us. And we give thanks that we are saved by grace alone. Father, may as we have sung, it truly be the cry of our hearts that that is our only plea. Father, we confess that it is so easy for us to look to our self-righteousness, to look to our abilities, to look to our goodness, and to think that that will somehow earn favor with you. But Father, as we have reminded ourselves, it is all of grace that we are your people. And so, Father, as we come to your word today, as we look at the end of Peter's letter, and we see him calling us to stand in grace, Father, may that truly be wrought in our hearts through your spirit today. Lord, we need your grace now as we come to your word. We need your grace to work through the gift of your Holy Spirit to convict us and to change us more into the image of your Son. Father, work as only you can. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And Lord willing, we will finish 1 Peter today. And I've said that to several people, and everyone gives me sort of like, yeah, I don't think so. So we'll see. We'll see. There is a lot here um, to point to. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. You know, um, when I worked a secular job in South Carolina while I was going to seminary, I worked for a company that did some level of technical support. And um, we would hear sort of uh, stories about crazy tech support calls that people would have. And I remember there's one, a, a lady called into um, the tech support line and she said that her computer just wouldn't turn on. And so the, the technician walked her through all the steps. Well, is it plugged in? That's the first step. Yes, it's plugged in. And, and are you pushing the power button? Yes, I'm pushing the power button. And is the monitor pushed power on? Yes, that's pushed on. And, and for no, everything she did, every step she took, she couldn't get the computer to power on. And then the technician heard a sort of talking in the background, and it was her co-workers, and he overheard one man saying, I wonder how long this power outage is going to last. You know, I think many times we approach the Christian life that same way. Doing all things without the power necessary to do it, and that is God's grace. It is the most essential part of our walk as Christians. We cannot 
walk as Christians apart from grace. And so as Peter draws this letter to a close where he's talked about a number of different things, where he's, he's talked about our status as exiles, where he's talked about what it means to trust in Christ, how that works its way out in our lives, how we're to be submissive to those around us that have authority. I mean, so many different topics that Peter points us to. He closes by reminding us that our power must be settled in the grace of God. Now, we may give lip service to the grace of God. Nobody here is going to deny that we don't need God's grace for the Christian life. But I think that oftentimes we fail to utilize the instruments God has given us for His grace, and we fail to understand the true nature of that grace. And so Peter is going to call us this morning as we look at the last salutations, the last final greetings he gives in his letter to stand in grace. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What we see Peter calling us to recognize is that we must stand firm in the grace of God as we walk the path of a pilgrim. And so the first thing we're going to see, two points today. So that, that, that's, that's some possibility we're going to get through it. It's not like seven or eight points, two points today. We're going to see, first of all, the nature of God's grace, the nature of God's grace. And one of the things that we need to notice that Peter points us to is we need to reject counterfeit grace. We need to reject counterfeit grace. As we have just read in verse 12, Peter points us to the true grace of God. Now, when he speaks of and identifies the true grace of God, which we're going to talk about in a few moments, that implies something. It implies that there are false or is false grace of God that is out there in the world today. Now, it's interesting because oftentimes in the letters written in the New Testament, there would be a lot of pointing out of error, pointing out and saying this is false grace. Peter doesn't really do that in this first letter. Now, he does in 2 Peter. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, we're going to be going on and studying 2 Peter next. Um, But in 2 Peter, he spends more time focusing on and describing and warning against errant doctrine. In 1 Peter, however, he seeks to stand us firmly on what true grace is. In fact, I think sometimes we get so focused on what's wrong that we forget to that we need to know what's right. We need to know true doctrine truly before we're able to identify and point out wrong doctrine. In fact, I mean, this is something that happens in the lives we live today. So let's say you have a signature of somebody that's very valuable. And so let's say you want to get that signature authenticated. You want to see whether or not it's true. What do you do? You take it to someone who has knowledge in authenticating it. And you know what he does? 
he takes the true signature and compares it to the one that you have. And he can determine whether or not your signature matches that which he knows to be authentic. And so if we're going to be discerning believers, we must first understand what authentic grace is so that we can reject counterfeit grace. And that's what Peter is calling us to do. Understanding the true grace of God. Which means, then, that we have to look to true grace. We reject counterfeit grace, and we do that by first and foremost looking to true grace. Now, what is the true grace that Peter is referring to? Well, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this... The this there is referring back to his writings. So the entire letter of 1 Peter, it is the true grace of God. What we need to understand, if we're looking to understand what grace is, what it looks like, it is not that we go to the opinions and the ideas of men, but we must define it as God defines it in his word. And that is what Peter is pointing these recipients of his letter, these believers in Asia, to notice. Look at what I've written. This is true grace. Stand in it. So what are these things, these focuses that, or foci, I guess is the correct term, these, the things that Peter focuses on in 1 Peter? And I'll be honest, I, I debated whether or not it would be a good exercise for us to just read the whole book again. But then, yeah, we'd never get done today. So, so what I've done is I've, I've gone through, and, and there are seven truths that Peter really points out. And so I'd like to discuss those just very briefly with you as we look back on what the true grace of God looks like in 1 Peter. And the first thing we notice is that by God's grace, pilgrims have hope. So there's going to be one word... Um, Summaries that we can say here. And so the first thing that Peter points us to that God's grace gives is hope. We see that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, that there's hope in Christ's resurrection. There's hope in His eternal inheritance. There's hope even as we face trials. There's hope that is established from eternity past that angels and Scripture itself bears witness to things that are eternally set forever, that our hope is confident. We see, secondly, then, that by God's grace, pilgrims who are this hope are now made holy. And so holiness is the second thing that Peter points us to. Talks about how holiness is both in our thoughts and in our actions. That holiness brings about newness of life. That holiness is brought about through the sacrifice of Christ. That if we glory in and revel in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but it does not produce holiness in our lives, we miss the whole point. And ultimately, that holiness is guided by God's Word. Thirdly, we see that God's grace and through God's grace, pilgrims now grow through, and I'm going to use a big theological term called sanctification, which means being made holy. We grow through the process of sanctification. And that sanctification begins through God's Word. And God's Word is shown in two different ways. The Word incarnate, 
Christ himself, and then the written word that is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That this sanctification brings about a new identity. And Peter points to the fact that we are a new people, that we're a holy nation, that we are the redeemed of God, that we no longer seek to identify ourselves based upon racial or ethnic monikers, but we are God's people. That sanctification brings about that new identity. And then that sanctification is shown through changed conduct. That we were acting one way, but now we act differently. The fourth thing we see about God's grace in 1 Peter is that pilgrims then are submissive. We had some fun with this one. Had you all saying, submit. It was good times. This is a hard thing to recognize, particularly when we recognize that sometimes the authorities placed over us are not godly. What are we to do when we see Peter calling us to submission to human authorities, both governmental and then managerial? So both what the government says and what our employment says. That as we submit, we do this in following Christ's example. He left us the example of submission, so we look to Him for that. And we see this in submission in families. Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands submit to Christ in loving and understanding their wives. Now again, this hope, this holiness, this sanctification and this submission. Notice how it works from the great truths that we look to for hope to now how this affects how you live on an everyday basis. And the great hope we have is garnered within us by God's grace and the things and the choices we make on an everyday basis. How does that happen? By God's grace. We see fifthly, by God's grace, or fifthly, I can't count. By God's grace, pilgrims suffer for God's glory. We see this in chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. We suffer, but not alone. We suffer in community. We suffer with each other. We suffer with faith in God's promises, recognizing that God will bring vengeance on those who oppose us and that God actually gives us blessing, that we are blessed if we suffer. We suffer for the sake of proclaiming Christ. And then we suffer while all through it looking to the redemption that Christ Himself brings. Sixthly, we see, by God's grace, pilgrims fight sin. This is transformation. We fight sin so that we can be like our Lord and Savior. We fight sin to be Christ-like. We fight sin by resisting the pull of the world. The world around us looks at us and they wonder why we don't join them in their flood of debauchery and they malign us. And we fight sin knowing its consequences. Knowing the consequences, first of all, that were meted out upon Christ on our behalf on the cross. And then recognizing that all those who reject hope in Christ will have those terrible consequences of God's wrath placed upon them in the end. 
And then finally, as we've been looking at some of the things here, towards the end of the book, we see that by God's grace, pilgrims join in community. See this in 4, 7 through 5, 11, and as we're going to see these last few verses as well. That this community, the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, is a community of service. We serve one another. It's a community that suffers together. And it is a community that is known for its humility. So, all those things, hope, holiness, sanctification, submission, suffering, transformation, and the community or the church of God, that is the grace of God that Peter points us to. This is what God's grace is meant to engender within us. Now, there's some wonderful, hopeful things in here. I mean, who doesn't want hope? So many of us in this world walk through it without hope, and God's grace gives hope. It gives satisfaction. It gives a path to walk. It also provides a guide for us seeking to be like our Savior in how we conduct ourselves in this world as pilgrims with holiness, with submission, seeking to be made more like Him. We now have a different view of suffering. Listen, everyone on the face of planet Earth suffers. But you get to suffer with God's grace, which prepares you and strengthens you and guides you as you face that suffering. You get to suffer in community. That we consider that there are those all around the world who are suffering as we are. You get to be transformed so that you are not who you were before Christ, but you are becoming more and more like Him. And even as we are sent and walking through this world as exiles, we are not alone. We have the church. We have the fellowship of believers to comfort us and to strengthen us as we walk the pilgrim pathway. So the nature of God's grace is based upon this true grace that Peter shows us in this entire book. I know what you're thinking. It's been a long time we've been going through 1 Peter and you just did the whole book in like 10 minutes. Why didn't you start like that? We look to true grace and then we depend on grace. Notice what Peter says here about this grace. This is the true grace of God. We are called to stand firm in it. Everything that he has said in this letter, everything that we have gone through over the last year and two months, Peter is calling us to say, look, stand firm in it. So we have to recognize that the writings of the New Testament, what Peter writes here in 1 Peter, what we see in Paul in Romans or Ephesians, what the book of Revelation is, they're not given to us just to be historical curiosities. It's not like, oh, this is, this is sort of the underpinnings of my religion. No, it is the grace of God. It is given to you to change your life, to depend upon it, to be shaped by it. 
And so what are we to be? We are to be a people of grace. Known by God's grace, changed by God's grace, living by God's grace, depending on God's grace, standing firm in God's grace. As Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 51, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which is the greatest expression of God's grace, that Paul preached to them, which they received, and in which they are currently what? Standing, in which you stand. Peter's calling us to do the same thing here. So we have to understand the nature of God's grace. We reject counterfeit grace, we look to true grace, and then we depend on that grace. One of the wonderful things about God's grace is it will never fail you. It will never fail you. You will never be disappointed by the grace of God. So, this is the thing we're called to live upon. Well, How do we access it? How do we receive this grace of God? And Peter thankfully, throughout these last few verses, shows us what these instruments of God's grace are. He points us to instruments of God's grace, and the first thing he points us to is the written word. Again, notice what he says. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Where does Peter first and foremost identify the instrument of God's grace? It is in his written word. Now, there's some great implications about what Peter is saying here. It's interesting how he says, I have written briefly to you. Now, when you come to the end of the book of Hebrews, the same type of thing is said. I've, I've written these, this short exhortation. In the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of stuff in the book of Hebrews. This one, sort of we get it. It's five chapters. In fact it likely would have been the the common practice of the New Testament church to read the entire letter in one sitting. Again, that's why I considered doing that here today. Now think about it. I've written to you briefly, but how long have we been in this study? I looked it up. It's taken us to this is the 39th week of us with this particular series. So 39 messages. 1,894 minutes, 31 and a half hours. An average of 48 minutes per every sermon. Now, it could be that I'm just long-winded, all right? And I'm sure that many of you would probably agree with that. But I think if we honestly assess this, we see clear evidence that this brief writing that Peter gives us contains profound, deep truths of God's grace and connections throughout the entirety of what he has written. What does this tell us? This is a testament to the ultimate author of this book, the Holy Spirit, God himself. That God can write such a brief letter and yet it have truths that are so profound that we have mined them for over a year and we still haven't gotten everything out of it. It's a testament to its supernatural origin. 
Only a book written by a divine author could contain so much, yet be so succinct. You don't have this type of thing happening with, you know, Mark Twain's, you know, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. This is the eternal word of God. And Peter is saying it contains and is the very true grace of God. So if we're called to stand in grace, what must we do with God's word? It must be integral to our lives. It is the source of genuine grace. We must look to God's word, order our lives upon it. As we saw at the beginning of the year, If we are to love God, we love God by loving what? His Word. If we're to to complete the first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then you will love His Word. And that's where in Deuteronomy, God tells His people, take the Word and speak of it when you rise up, when you sit down, when you go to to your place of business, when you go about your day, when you come in, have it be like frontlets on your forehead and on your wrists or, or like on the doorposts of your house so that God's Word is permeating everything in your life. And if we're called to stand in grace, then we must be standing in the grace of God given by His Word. Listen, there is nowhere else to go to find that truth, that grace written down than in God's Word. Listen, I, I'm, I have friends who've written books. I'm all for Christian books and, and Christian life books and, and helpful things that are given there. But listen, they don't hold a candle to the Word of God. God's grace is given to point us to God's word. Listen, we cannot understand anything about God apart from his grace given through his word. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. We've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we what? Understand the things freely given to us. Listen, even coming to the word of God, it's, we are dependent upon his grace in the Holy Spirit. You realize that there are people who have advanced degrees in the Word of God who are as lost as the drug addict on the corner of the street. Why? What's the problem with both of them? They both don't have the grace of God exhibited through the Spirit pointing them to the Word. So when you come to God's Word, when you want to understand it, What must you be dependent on? The Spirit, the grace of God given through His Spirit. We see it in 2 Corinthians 3.15 that when, particularly for the Jews, whenever the Word of God, the law of Moses is read, there's a veil. But when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. We receive, or we are in that turning, we are born again. We're given the Spirit of God, and the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, what is there? Freedom. Freedom to understand God's Word. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, we are to take the helmet of salvation as we wage our battle in spiritual warfare, and we are to take the sword of who? The Spirit. And what is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. I think of John 3, 
We know this passage well. Of course, we know John 3, 16 well. I think sometimes we forget a lot of what's said in the entire passage. This is Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a, he was a smart cookie. Member of the Sanhedrin, respected. And he comes to Jesus, sort of quietly, out of the way. Doesn't want to be accused of being with Jesus. And he asks him some questions. And Jesus responds to him, telling him he needs to be born again. And he's like, how can I be born again? And Jesus says, look, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And then Nicodemus, who's, who's, again, smart guy, influential religious leader, member of the Sanhedrin, he says to him, how can these things be? And notice what Jesus' response is. Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? What was Nicodemus missing? The new birth. Brought about by who? The Spirit of God. And so it is for us, if we're going to come and seek to know the grace of God, we need the grace of God to show us and illumine the Word of God to us. It is the primary means of God's grace. That's why Peter speaks of his letter as the thing his readers are to stand in. I mean, if you think about it, that's a bit of an audacious claim, right? I'm going to write a letter to you, and I'm going to tell you at the end of it that everything here, you need to stand in the truths that I've written to you. How can Peter make such a claim? Because the Spirit inspired him gave him the words that are written here so that they are Peter's words and God's words, and then he can call them to account, stand in this grace. Let me, let me just ask you, what is the Word of God to you? Is it a curious thing to learn about from a head knowledge perspective? Is it, is it something that you, you read because it's, well, it's what Christians do, and so I've got to check off my box? Or is it the very thing that deals with the very most important aspects of your life? Is the Word of God central? Or is it sort of orbiting around other more important things? Listen, Peter is calling us to stand in God's grace. We find that grace in His Word. Are you looking to that Word? To strengthen you so you can stand in it. But while the word is the primary instrument of God's grace, it is not the only instrument of God's grace. And that's where we see that there is a focus on the ministry of believers. We have, um, we have four groups of believers discussed here. Two of which are individuals and then two of the other ones are sort of groups that he speaks of. We have Sylvanius, we have Mark, we have the church universal, and then we have the local church. And so all, so we go from individual encouragement to 
to really widespread encouragement in the entire church than to how the church as a local body is able to provide grace to each other. The first thing we see is this guy named Sylvanus. And what we see is that God's grace produces faithfulness with Sylvanus. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now, who is this Sylvanus? Well, it is most likely, and almost without a question, a reference to Silas. What you find in the Scriptures is oftentimes people will be referred to by different names, but it's referring to the same person. And we're pretty confident that this is referring to Silas. Now, when you, you hear the word Silas, immediately you start thinking of who? Paul. Paul and Silas. He was often a companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, in the book of Acts, he is tasked with delivering the message of the gospel along with the apostles. He's described as a prophet. And he is someone who, in the book of Acts, experiences persecution and violence with Paul firsthand. Now, it's important to note here how Peter says that it is by Silvanus that this letter is written. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what that means. What does it mean by Silvanus or by the hand of Silvanus? Some people think that it's referring to him as sort of being Paul's secretary or Peter's secretary, that Peter would dictate this letter and that Silvanus would write it down. But that's probably likely not the case. What most likely is the case is that he is the one who is carrying this letter. If, if you go back to ver- chapter 1, just wanted to point this out. Notice that this letter is not written to one particular church. It's written to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he speaks of five cities, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So most likely what would happen is Silvanus was the one who came to each of those churches. And he would read the letter aloud, and then they would copy that letter down so that that church could keep it, and then Silvanus would up and he'd take himself to the next city. And that's how, that's how most of the New Testament circulated in the first century. That's one of the reasons why we have manuscripts and multiple copies of manuscripts, because they were doing what the apostles were telling them to do. And that's a long discussion for another time. So notice what Paul is saying here. I am, I am sending Silvanus to you to take this letter, and I regard him as a faithful brother. This is the observation that Peter makes about him. Now, this was something that Peter would have witnessed firsthand. Silas was instrumental in the growth of the new New Testament church. He was jailed with Paul. Silas is a faithful example of what God's grace working looks like. And so Peter commends him to the church and says, this is somebody who is faithful in these things. You can learn from him as you watch him live his faith out in the world by the grace of God. What God did with him, he can do with you. And that is so often the case that we often forget when we think about our heroes of the faith, the wonderful things that they've done. Listen, God's grace was the same then as it is now. What He did then, He can do now. 
And so we see that in the faithfulness of silence. The challenge then for us is that we would seek to have that same description said about us, that we are faithful. Again, by the grace of God. Silas stood as that example to the churches in Asia. And so for us today, I know that you know of people who are faithful in the Lord. Talk to them. Ask them, how do you do this? How have you suffered? How have you dealt with these things? That their example of God's grace transforming them would be something that would spur you on to exhibit that same faithfulness in you. Listen, Peter tells the church, the churches in Asia, to stand in grace, stand firm in it, and Silas stands as an example of what that looks like. So we see Silas. But then secondly, we see Mark. And while Silas is an example of God's grace producing faithfulness straight out of the gate, with Mark, we see more an indication of how God's grace produces growth. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. She was at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, he's not referring to Mark as his biological son, but rather his son in the faith. Who is this Mark? This is John Mark. And he, like Silas, was a companion of the Apostle Paul. But we actually find out in Scripture that he has a little bit of a disagreement with the Apostle Paul. In fact, in Acts chapter 15... Um, in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, we see that after some days, Paul and Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city. I'm, I'm sorry, let me go back one. Um, I'm all over the place now. Hold on a second. The PowerPoints are graced, but sometimes they find Okay. So, Acts 13, 5, when they arrived at Salamis, They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, and this is referring to John Mark, to assist them. So he's there helping the church share the gospel. But then we see that Paul and his companions sailed from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But what does John Mark do? He leaves them, and he goes back to Jerusalem. And so this becomes a problem for Paul, so much so that in Acts 15, when they're seeking to go out on another missionary journey, go back to Jerusalem, visit the brothers in every city, Barnabas says, hey, let's take John, who is now called Mark. But Paul says, I don't think so. And he remembers how he withdrew from him in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And guess what happens? Well, the same thing that happens in any church today when two people disagree. There arose a sharp disagreement. Listen, there isn't any... I'll just, I just put it in, in colloquial terms. There ain't nothing new under the sun. And what was happening, what happens in the church today with disagreements, it was going on even with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And so they end up separating from each other. Barnabas takes Mark with him, and he sails away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, 
and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So notice what happens. There's this sort of rift or division among the apostles. All because of John Mark. Now what we actually see is that Whatever the reasoning was for John Mark to go back to Jerusalem, we don't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. We don't know if Paul's reaction was, was he was overreacting or not. But what we do know is that the grace of God was evident on John Mark. Because in 2 Timothy 4.11, notice what Paul says about John Mark. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? Because he is not just useful to me, he is very useful to me for ministry. And so here he is writing this letter and he says, Mark sends you greetings. My son. Now what we know from church history is that over time, Mark begins to become very close with the apostle Peter. In fact, there are many who believe that Mark the, the gospel of Mark is actually written by this Mark and that he is writing sort of as Peter's interpreter. We have a, a, a church father named Athanasius who made that claim, said that Mark was Peter's interpreter. So when you read the, the book of Mark, you're actually reading, to some extent, the gospel of Peter. So, so think about this. You have this guy who becomes a, a, a point of contention, a point of division, and yet God's grace is of such transformative power that he writes a gospel that is preserved for us in Scripture, and Paul says he's very useful to me in ministry. Now, what does, that, what does all that mean for us today? What did it mean for the church, the churches in Asia that Peter was writing to? Listen, God can take your mistakes and your mess-ups and He can still use you by His grace. That as we grow in that grace, we become more useful for Him. So we've seen Silas and Mark. And then we see the universal church. Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now, why would that be added here at the end? Why would, he, why would he talk about the church at Babylon? Well, first of all, it's important to note who he's referring to. He's not referring to a church at the physical area of Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar was king. That, that nation had been destroyed. It didn't exist in that day. So what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to most likely Rome. It became very, very early practice in the church to refer to Rome as Babylon. Now, now why would he find it necessary to say that the church, the church in Rome, which, again, church history tells us that Peter spent time in Rome, so this seems to line up with that. Why would he find it necessary to tell them this? Well, how were Christians doing in Rome? Not good. There was persecution. There was hatred. This was, this was the height of Rome's glory and power where Caesar, who was viewed as a god, lived. 
And in the backdrop of that, there was all sorts of social, economic, and physical persecution that happened to these believers. Now, when Peter tells us in this book, filled with the grace of God, that we're going to suffer, that we're to consider ourselves blessed when he does that, when he says that the church at Rome gives greetings to them, that's an encouragement for them because they're facing the same things. In fact, it also brings together the idea that they are strangers and exiles. The reference to Babylon. Why is Babylon in the Old Testament? What did they do? They took God's people captive and took them from their land and took them into a strange land so that Israel would be strangers and foreigners in exile. And so as Peter gives greetings from this church that's at Rome, that's at Babylon, he's saying, listen, they don't belong and neither do you. I would encourage you to to get on an email list from different organizations that tell us about what the church around the world is facing. Voice of the Martyrs. Frontline Missions International. Uh, we We have a whole set of DVDs put out by Frontline Missions called Dispatches from the Front that describes with videos of people there what the church in persecuted areas is dealing with. Listen, Peter is saying, look, you you are not alone in your exile. You have brothers and sisters across the world that are suffering these same things. As he said in 1 Peter 5, 9, we are to resist the devil firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are be experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. Now, there's a great hope in recognizing that Babylon will not win. Look at what's said and prophesied about Babylon in Jeremiah. The word of the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations, proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not and say, Babylon is what? Taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek Yahweh their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned out, toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. And as we are strangers and exiles in Babylon today, we look forward to this hope that Babylon will fall and God's kingdom will be known by His people who know Him in everlasting covenant. And we see that in Revelation 17. Revelation 17. The angel comes and shows John, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Listen, he's speaking of a worldwide system. 
This woman is sitting on a scarlet beast that's full of blasphemous names. And notice what one of the names that the woman has. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels, a cup full of abominations, impurities, and sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now listen, this description of the world system that is labeled as Babylon, we live in that today. Do do we not feel as though the world in which we live has a cup full of abominations? And listen, we look at that and we feel like we don't belong. But here is hope. Here is hope. That in Revelation 17, he speaks about this and he says that as for the beast that was not, it is an eighth but belongs to seven and it goes to what? Destruction. Christ will bring about full and complete devastation. And listen what what it says at the very end here. They will make war. This is the world system making war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will what? Conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Listen, this is exciting stuff. This world system that has a cup full of abominations, Christ will set right. And so we hear greetings from the church at Babylon. You realize that there are churches in Afghanistan and Iran and Syria and Turkey and China and nations in Africa By God's grace, they continue to proclaim the gospel. We have fellowship with them in the universal church. But then finally, not only do we have this focus on the universal church, but we have focus on the local church. Listen, we're going to be a little bit longer than usual today, but I'm going to finish, all right? Give me just a few more minutes. We see the final thing here, verse 14. One last command. We're to stand in grace, and then this last command is greet one another with the kiss of love. And all the teenagers love that one, right? Or don't like that one. What is he talking about here? The kiss of love. Now, there's been lots of discussion about this. Paul talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Um... And I think sometimes, I think well-meaning people have pointed to that and say, well, it's just sort of the way we greet people today, you know, like with a handshake or maybe with a hug. And I understand the, the sentiment there, but I think it misses something. Listen, we go out in the business world and we shake hands with people, we hug coworkers that we know, and there's, no dif- there's a big difference between them and the church of God. So what is Peter talking about, this kiss of love? Well, he's talking about the fact that as a local body of believers, we are family. Who do you generally share kisses with the most? Your family. And so it is for us. What Peter is trying to point us to is, listen, 
You're strangers. You're exiles. You don't belong in this world. But you know where you do belong? With God's people locally in His church. That we are truly family. So what does that look like today? I don't think culturally that means that we need to start smooching every Sunday we come in here. And I know many of you are thankful for for that interpretation. But it does mean that underlying that cultural idea is you should love these people in these seats with fervent love. This is your family. Do you view it that way? Look, this world is rough. We're strangers and exiles. We don't belong here. We've got Babylon the Great with its cup full of abominations. And yes, we find comfort in the church around the world that's suffering. But, Paul, but Peter is saying, listen, don't neglect the local church. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Love your family in Christ. You know, there are some people who say that the local church is, isn't necessary, that the doctrine is not in Scripture. I, I don't, I'm pretty sure that there's no other way to practice this command than in the local church. You, can't, you cannot live without the church of Christ, and you cannot live without the local church of Christ. This is your refuge. This is when you are home. This is the place where you can let your hair down. You can be yourself here because we all are instruments of God's grace. And so we have the ministry of believers. We see the examples of Silas and of John Mark. We see the church universal and we see the local church, which brings us finally to the greatest gift and instrument of God's grace. It is the gift of Jesus Christ. Look at the last phrase. Peace to all of you. But he doesn't stop there. He puts a qualifier on it. Who gets peace? Those who are in Christ. We find that the final instrument of God's grace is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this aptly is where Peter ends this letter. We are, after all, to be known as what? Christians. Christians. This benediction or the blessing that we often see at the end of letters in the New Testament, it's not complicated. It's short and succinct. And in many ways, it summarizes the entire book. Look, if you want peace, you have it, but you have it if you're in Christ. That's so important to keep in mind. You see, he tells us that we don't belong here at the beginning of the book, and this can be a cause of considerable concern. He tells us that we're going to suffer. He tells us that people are going to mistreat us. He tells us that we're going to have to submit even to the ones who are mistreating us. Great. And all that can cause us to not have what? Peace. How can we have peace in the midst of such turmoil and conflict? The answer is that peace is given to those who are in Christ. How we need to be reminded of this. 
such a short verse, such, such the, the end of a verse, but yet such a, such a hopeful and needed reminder. But this qualifier also serves to show us that there are people who may be excluded from that peace. Even in the churches that he's writing to. Which means that I have to recognize that even in these seats, there may be people who are hearing these words and are excluded from the peace Peter offers because they are not in Christ. Peace is not available to everyone universally. It is only available to those who, united, who are united to Christ by faith. Which means that if you are not in Christ, you have no peace. If you are not in Christ, you have no peace. Those are haunting words. And so if your life seems to exhibit consternation and concern, difficulty and problems, and you're seeking peace in all the wrong places, let me remind you what our Savior says. That He left His disciples with what? Peace. But notice that peace that He gives is not the peace that the world gives. And so if we can have peace in Christ, rejecting the peace of the world, then what gets to happen to our hearts? Let not your hearts be what? Troubled. So, we're strangers and exiles. We don't belong. But we can have peace in not belonging in Jesus Christ. Are you in Him by faith? Today, may you cry out to Christ. May today be the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Be born anew and begin this path of a pilgrim as you stand firm in His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Take it and apply it to our hearts and lives. Do the work that only your spirit can do. Father, we thank you for so much that we have in Jesus. We pray that you